We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Good afternoon. Welcome to Hamilton Today here on 900 CHML. Scott Radley sitting in today, replacing the vacationing and probably very relaxed right now, Scott Thompson. Whatever he's doing, and I have no idea what it is, I am sure Scott is barely conscious, just laid out somewhere in a hammock, doing what we all wish we could be doing. It's okay. Uh, Glad you're here. You will be glad you're here, I'm telling you. And not just so we can talk about this bear. I know this has been going on for a couple days now, but have you seen the picture or the video of this bear or this alleged bear? It's in a Chinese zoo and there is video and people... A whole conversation has been started accusing people at this Chinese zoo of dressing up a guy in a bear suit (laughs) and pretending to be a bear for the visitors. And when you look at the picture, I'm almost positive that it is a guy in a bear suit. But there are experts who say, no, 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 that's a sun bear. That's a Chinese sun bear. That's what they look like. It is the strangest looking man-like or woman, I don't know, middle-aged dude posture-like bear with a saggy, (laughs) saggy bum wrinkles um, and very large feet that don't look like claws. Go look up the picture and you, you tell me if the people in the Chinese zoo are being fed a line here that they are looking at a guy who's in a bear suit or if this is really some sort of just unique bear that is, yeah, I don't know. Tom, have you seen the picture? Uh, I just looked up the video and that is an extremely <laughs> tall standing bear <laughs> with very erect posture. <laughs> very, very like it's, it's better posture than I have Scott. And that's kind of impressive or just sad. Yeah, for the zoo. And some experts say, no, this is, this is what the bears look like. But look at, I mean, if you look at the picture, look at the feet, I've never seen a bear. Bears have, paw, have claws, have paws. I've never seen bear, B-E-A-R, not B-A-R-E, bear feet that would look like the feet on this. This is, this has got to be Bob who's stuck inside a bear suit has been paying 14 bucks an hour to. This is, they couldn't even afford a realistic looking bear costume. This looks like something straight out of Party City. That it kind of does. That, that you just uh, bet your drunk friend to pretend to be a baron. Yeah, that's right. I'll give you a case of beer. If you be a bear for two hours, I know it's a thousand degrees outside and you're going to die in there, but you just, you know, do what bears do. Just stand around and beg for food and growl occasionally. And if you want to like go all full, you know, if you want to talk, you know, you do it as Yogi. I don't know. Just throw people off. It is a very, very bizarre story. You go, go look up the picture again. It's uh, just look up Chinese zoo bear. You'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. And then you tell me, send us a text. Is that a bear? Or is that a dude? 905-645-3221. Want to hear from you. Bear or no bear? And if you're going to do this yourself, are you going to do it for a case of beer or a picnic basket? Yeah, that's, uh, we're, not, we're not giving away either today, but you can just tell us. I want to, I want to hear what you think of this and whether it's uh, real or not. Hey, uh, let me tell you what else is coming up on the show today. We are going to be chatting about electric vehicles. There are lots of questions, so many questions about this as we move more and more towards electric vehicles, people saying, yes, but, and that doesn't mean that it's not coming. Just a lot of people having some questions about this. Uh, we're going to talk about taxes. We always love taxes. Well, we don't love taxes. We always love talking about taxes because 
as we've discussed many times on this show and others, it seems as though governments find amazing ways to spend our money. Not always good ways. We'll talk about taxes. Uh, cannabis. This is, this is a really interesting one. We're almost four, four I guess five years into the legalization of cannabis in this country. And one of the things that experts are now saying, some of the experts in the medical field are saying is, how come we haven't used the opportunity we've been given now that people are using this stuff on a more out there open basis to study its effects? There are lots of experts who are saying, we are squandering opportunities to learn about this now that we have a field and we may be allowing people to do something that's harmful or maybe not, but why are we not studying it while we have the opportunity? We will get to that. We're going to talk about the prime minister's separation today with his wife. You've heard that on the news. Um, does it matter? I mean, it matters to him, matters to her. I am I devastated, Scott. I am but devastated. Does, no, but the, I mean, to, to people at this point, does it make any difference? Does it make you think less of him, more of him, no difference of him? Does it have any political ramification? We'll get into all that stuff because one of the things they've said is, look, this is private. Please give us our privacy. Yeah, I, I agreed as it comes to the kids, 100%. The kids have nothing to do with this. But is it entirely private? Is it entirely private when a prime minister and his spouse break up? His father and Margaret Trudeau broke up while he was in office. That was not entirely private. Should this be entirely off limits or is this a story? I think it's a story. We'll talk about that one uh, later on. Uh, here's one. Go um, l later in the next couple of weeks. Apparently, uh, you've heard this as well, but it's now really coming to fruition. News, Canadian news will be off places like Meta and Instagram and places like that. How is this going to affect things? And speaking of online stuff, if you have gone on to try to find an online app that works, a mobile app for the CFL, good luck. How can a league not have a working mobile app? I will talk about that later in the show as well. And the Twitter poll. Yesterday, cigarettes sold in Canada are now required to be individually printed with anti-smoking warnings. Do you think this will make people think twice about smoking? 95% of you said, yeah, no, not a bit. Smart people. Today, Donald Trump has been indicted on felony charges for trying to overturn allegedly the results of the 2020 election. Would you though be surprised if the former president won the 2024 US election? Yes or no? Go to Twitter or X. Go to 900CHML and cast your vote. We would love to hear from you about whether you think that is a possibility or is not a possibility. I got to tell you, I, I, well, I'll tell you what, I'll save my thought on that one until a little later in the show. I, yesterday, we talked all about my thoughts about the cigarette thing beforehand, and I don't know if it skewed the results. I doubt it. Nobody was listening to my, <laughs> my opinion anyway. I but guess today we'll find out if that's true. We'll find out. But is, is it, would you be shocked? If the former president, Donald Trump, won the 2024 U.S. election despite new charges being levied against him, yes or no, go to Twitter and cast your vote there. The future is going to be electric vehicles. Whether you like it or whether you don't like it, the future is electric vehicles. They're being mandated. They're being pushed. We have billions of dollars of federal money being put into programs in Windsor and St. Thomas to build electric vehicle batteries. This is where things are clearly going to be going. However... It's a really interesting story that's developing here because some Canadians, if we go back to June 
roughly. Uh, J.D. Power did a survey and found out that basically two-thirds of Canadians say they are reluctant or not wanting or very unlikely or somewhat unlikely to buy an electric vehicle as their next car. Huh. That's opposite basically to the numbers in the States, which were much different. Today or yesterday, we see some other information that comes out that may help explain this, that Canada is far behind in demand and what will be the need for charging stations. That we have roughly, well, there are 18,000 roughly charging stations across the country right now. To meet demand 10 years from now, we are going to need 450,000, they say, according to the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association. Let me bring in Marvin Ryder from the Negroot School of Business. We all know him. Marvin, thanks for taking time today. Glad to be with you. This is a tricky one because you have the country clearly and the governments and other people say, hey, buy an electric vehicle, buy an electric vehicle. And I think many people are open to the concept under two circumstances. One, that it's going to be reliable and two, that it can be somewhat affordable. And right now, I think both of those things in a lot of people's minds are in question. Right. So if you don't mind, before we just dive into that part of the question, let me just set it up a little bit, give you some context. Last year in Canada, 1.5 million new vehicles were purchased. 1.5 million new vehicles were purchased. Of those, roughly 130,000 were electric vehicles. So that works out to be about 8% of the total. This year, we expect the number of new vehicles to go up to 1.6 million, but we don't know how many of them will be electric vehicles. The government has announced goals that by the year 2026, that's three years from now, they'd like to see 20% of new vehicles sold be electric. By 2030, they'd like it to be 60%. And of course, by 2035, they'd like it to be 100% of the total. So there's lots of room to grow, even though the number of electric vehicles sold in Canada last year went up by 30%. It's moving, and it's moving quickly, but is it moving fast enough? Now, J.D. Power did a survey, and they asked people, would you buy an electric vehicle on your next car? I might actually have completed that survey, and I said no. Uh, and the reason is that I looked into buying an electric vehicle. There are three big problems with electric vehicles in Canada. The first is the uh, um, amount of time you can drive before you need to recharge. For me, I'd like to be able to drive from here to London, Ontario, and back on one charge. And right now, that's pushing the limit on many electric vehicles. If we can get the range before you need to recharge up to around 600, 700 kilometers, I'm in. Problem number two, you mentioned charging stations. Now, I think this is a bit of a misnomer. Somebody said 450,000 charging stations. Unlike gas-powered vehicles, where we all have to drive to a gas service station, we can actually charge these things at home. So how many of these need to be standalone charging stations that I can pull into and you know, plug into for 20 minutes versus have a charging station at my home that I can plug in overnight? I'm not sure what the breakdown is. And, and if I were to buy an electric vehicle, I would also pay the extra money to have my own personal charging station installed in my garage, and then that eliminates much of my worry about filling up. And the third problem, of course, is availability. And that's the thing that's got me as a problem. I was looking to buy a new car in 2024, and I went to my dealership, um, and I said, hey, can I, can I buy one of these? And they said, well, if you order it right now, we might be able to deliver it to you in 2025 or 2026. 
And I went, no, 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 I'm looking for a new car in 2024. Oh, I'm sorry, you know, you, you didn't order it fast enough. So the, the other availability is actually the availability of the vehicles themselves. Has, has the, the uh, private sector, have they been able to ramp up production to meet these goals? And this is why I think Canadians who have been kicking the tires on electric vehicles have soured on them a little bit. One is the charging stations. Number two is the distance between charges. And number three is, are they simply even available? Well, and let's go just to the second one for a minute, because again, this goes to the story that came out today about the charging stations. And your other two points are 100% valid. I I don't want to sort of pretend they didn't happen. I just want to go to this one for a second, because you're absolutely right that we can charge at home. But if you decide to drive up to Muskoka or drive to London or somewhere, you probably will have to charge. But unlike a gas station where I can pull in and fill up my car in what, five minutes, I can be in and out. Now it may take me half an hour or 45 minutes, but if there is a lineup now, not only do I have to wait 45 minutes, I may have to wait to get one of these stations. That, that I think is a deterrent to some people to say, well, if, as you say, if I have a, a particular route that I like to do, I can't put myself in a position where I can't be sure I can get there. Right. And to take your, your comment a step farther, you mentioned, I think it was around 18,000 charging stations today. Well, guess what? They're mostly in urban areas. So if I am trying to drive to the cottage, or maybe I'm going to have a little camping weekend up uh, in Algonquin Park, uh, good luck finding a charging station. Well, right. <laughs> Right. So let's say I I go up and and I stop at Weber's on the way up to the cottage and I don't think there's any charging stations at Weber's. Maybe there are, but let's say they put in 10. All of a sudden those things are filled. How long am I waiting before I can even fill my car with the charge and move on? It, It is going to be something that the governments are going to have to address before I think people are really going to latch onto this. Well, if you don't mind, I'll say the governments and the private sector. Sure. So also in the last few days, there was a story out that all the EV manufacturers, whether we're talking Ford, GM, or Chrysler, or all the other car companies in the world, they too see this charging infrastructure as a problem, and they too are making commitments to building charging stations. I suppose, you know, none of us were alive, but back when the car was first introduced, we didn't have gas stations on every That's corner true. either. And there had to be an investment made in that infrastructure to make vehicles take off. And I think at that time, the, the car manufacturers themselves helped uh, by building the first gas stations out there. And I think you're going to see the same thing. So again, how fast can they do this? Even if they say today in 2023, we want to build, I don't know, 10,000 more charging stations or 50,000 more charging stations. Well, you can't snap your fingers and have them up overnight. They take a while to, to construct. Mm. So I think, again, when you survey people and say, are you interested? I think the concept of an electric vehicle is actually registering well with a lot of Canadians. But is that going to be it's the details. Yeah. Marvin Ryder. I think I'd let you go first. Yeah, there you go. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. I think a lot of people may say that. I always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Glad to be with you. Governments want money. It seems they like to spend money, which raises a really interesting point that the Canadian Taxpayers Federation has raised today. And I want to talk about this a little bit. The proposal, the suggestion that it is time, starting with the Ontario government, it is time to pass law that requires a balanced budget. It is, this is the proposal. It is time. Things have turned a corner a little bit. Ontario has had a surplus for a while. It's time for governments to begin passing laws that require that they don't spend more than they have. 
And that would, I mean, city, cities do that right now. Municipalities in the province of Ontario may not, they are not allowed to take on debt for operational stuff. So they can only live within their means. They are forced by law to live within their means. What does that mean? Well, if they want to spend a lot more, like Hamilton is looking like it's going to be doing, we're heading towards a 10% tax increase or thereabouts, we hear. Well, they can do that, but they have to go to the voters after and the voters can say yes or no to that. But they can't just saddle more and more debt into future generations. Is this a good idea? Let me bring in Jay Goldberg. He's the Ontario Interim and Interim Atlantic Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Sorry, I botched your intro there, Jay. Uh, How are you today? Very good. Great to be with you. This is an interesting idea because yes, we've been through COVID and yes, everything went haywire with his spending and yes, we had all these things that we had to pay for. But now that we're on the backside of that, you're proposing that maybe it's time that we now put a law in says from here to four until the end of time, you better balance your budget and you have to balance your budget. Yeah. So what we're saying is, look, there's always going to be things that come up like COVID, which was just completely out of left field that could lead a government in an emergency situation to have to run a deficit. What we are saying is that when you're in a normal financial situation, so non-COVID, the economy's not collapsing, the healthcare system isn't, uh, you know, facing this massive new pandemic, when it's normal times, it's very reasonable for us to ask our governments to balance the books. And the reason why is that we're spending more than a billion dollars a month now on debt interest. That could build a new hospital a month for that. And, you know, we've just racked this up over years and years. Uh, We had many deficits under the McGuinty government, under the Wynn government, and then under the Ford government. A lot of them not really warranted. If if you would ask folks, you know, after all these years of deficits, what have we gotten out of it? I don't think people are really able to point to, you know, one or two concrete things and say, this is why Ontario's debt is over $500 billion or almost $500 billion, I should say. So all we're saying is pass a law as they have in Alberta that if you're not in an emergency situation, you should balance the books and not borrow more money on the backs of future generations. Well, I mean, part of the reason we we know, and I mean, we're not being cynical here, we know part of the reason why spending is done is because spending often is believed anyway and probably does buy votes. So if we spend money on things that people think are really good, even if they don't have to pay for it right now because we go into debt, maybe I can win the next election. If you put in a balanced budget act, yeah, they could still do that, but it means they're going to have to cut something else. It means hard choices. And I, I just get the sense, Jay, that politicians don't love making hard choices. They just love giving stuff, not taking stuff. That's true. Politicians do not love making hard choices, but Alberta now finally does have a balanced budget legislation. And actually, it requires the government to restrain the growth of spending to be below inflation plus population growth. So we do have an opportunity here to pass this kind of legislation. The Ford government has finally gotten in a position where we've had surpluses for consecutive years. And really, all this would be saying is that going forward, you maintain the surplus. You just make sure that we don't fall back into deficit. So, you know, look, we had $6 billion of new spending last year compared to the year before, uh, and we remained in surplus. And the reason is because tax revenue grows every year, uh, and the money the government has to allocate to different priorities can grow every year too. So the Ford government did increase spending by $6 billion, and yet still managed to keep the budget balanced. So 
you can address core priorities. And I think, as you said very importantly before, no one is saying that we can't, if we want to, spend all kinds of more money on new hospitals or new infrastructure or new highways or new uh, transit. But what we are saying is we need to make a choice. If we want to spend money in one place, we shouldn't be spending it in another. Or some might argue you can look to taxpayers if, if they want to pay more. I would argue that's the wrong approach. But the bottom line is let's not increase the debt. So let's stop spending over $12 billion a year on debt interest. But at least that that our kids have more money going forward to spend on what they want. But Jay, at least if you were going to put it on the taxpayers, very quickly, the taxpayers have the chance to decide whether that was well spent or not. They can vote you out. If you, if you overspend and you put them in a bad spot, they can speak very loudly at the, at the, at the ballot box. The flip side to what you're saying though, there are, I know there are people, there are people listening right now who are saying Ontario has a surplus. This is not indicative now that we should have a balanced budget. This just means there's more room to spend money on necessary things. Nurses need more money. Teachers need more money. The education system, medical, all these things. It's not, we shouldn't restrict now. This shows we have the ability to spend more. Well, I mean, as I just said, we just, increased spending last year by $6 billion. They allocated $2.5 billion more than expected, according to the FAO report to education last year. So I think sometimes there's this uh, thought that somehow if we we balance the budget, we restrain spending, restrain spending growth, that spending is not going up. I mean, in fact, it is going up. and, And the bottom line is the tax base has gone up to support that. So I think it's very important that we focus on the fact that, yes, the budget is balanced, but also if you compare our spending levels to other provinces, Ontario spends more money per person, hundreds of dollars more per person on health care than Alberta does and then British Columbia does. We are far and away the leaders in spending on health care. We increased spending on education $2.5 billion last year, which is a significant increase if you look at the overall budget. Uh, Ontario teachers are paid some of the best in the country. So, Look, and again, I think you made the very valid point that if there are other priorities that people do want to increase spending, uh, well, if you had a balanced budget law and the government had to increase taxes, then people would have a hard choice to make. And I think the problem is sometimes uh, we get into these mindsets where politicians think, well, you know, we can have our cake and eat it too. We can spend more, we can not increase taxes, and let's just place the burden on future generations. And I think it's time for us to say, no, that's not fair. If governments want to spend more money than they're bringing in, they can increase taxes. And as you say, face the voters who don't want to see higher taxes. And if you give voters a choice, overwhelmingly we've seen, voters will say, let's restrain spending and not raise taxes. But because you're not putting that choice before them, you're just saying, let's not change taxes and let's dramatically increase spending. Spending has gone up, but when that choice is in place, people become more fiscally responsible. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting one. It's an interesting one that we'll be discussing again about whether we should have a balanced budget law. It's a, I, I know who doesn't want this, politicians, but I, everyone else may be interested in such a thing. Uh, Jay Goldberg, I always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you. You probably heard this story a few weeks ago that um, at the Ancaster Little League Diamond on Jerseyville Road, the bleachers walked away so to speak. Um, all of a sudden, 
people came to the park and the bleachers had been unbolted and were gone, the metal bleachers. And this, of course, led to lots of coverage, but lots of looking. And well, it ended yesterday, it seems, or the day before with the arrest of a 28, I believe, 28-year-old Hamilton guy, 28-year-old man, um, who apparently uh, tried to sell them at a metal recycler in the city. Probably a pretty good guess of where these things were going to end up all along. However, it does raise a lot of questions. This whole story raises a lot of questions for me because there are tons of parks all over the city, tons of venues, tons of fields, tons of bleachers, tons of... Do we have to start protecting these things or do we trust that people are just going to be decent human beings and let these things be? Chris Davies is with Ancaster. Literally, he's the director of promotions and special events. Chris joins me now. Chris, how are you today? Thank you. How are you? I listen, I'm good. I'm glad that uh, there's been some resolution to this, um, sort of. But nonetheless, go to that question. I mean, this is, you guys have a park that sits there and you don't have people watching it 24 hours a day like most other parks around the city. Are we getting to the point where we have to start doing this? Because this isn't the first time either that your park, I mean, the bathrooms were vandalized a few years ago. Do we almost have to start putting closed circuit cameras and watching all this stuff? Well, buddy, uh, we definitely will be. Uh, we were fortunate enough that the Ancaster Ice Cream Parlor has their um, security cameras outside, and they were able to get a good good picture oh. of the fella um, who was involved. So we'll be adding some additional cameras throughout the park. We'll also be, uh, we're going to tack weld all the bolts that hold the bleachers in place. Uh, that way, you know, they, they will be basically impossible to take off. Um, we're going to secure all our bleachers in our park, buddy. We, we're not taking any chances. No, but, and, and okay, fair enough. And, and that's something that you can do and you can prevent this from happening again, but it, it's kind of pathetic that you have to do that, isn't it? Oh my God, man. It certainly is that, you know, that the people would sink to such a point in their life that this is what they would have to do. I mean, you're stealing from these children, from their parents, They're, you're taking away from their fun, from what gets them through the summer, just for what? I mean, I'm sure they weren't worth much money when they scrapped them, not as much as they were to build them. That's for sure. Yeah. I, I don't like, okay. So I, I mean, anyone who's been by there who knows the park recognizes that it's a reasonably, um, what's, what's I'm looking for. There's not going to obviously be a lot of people watching all the time. I mean, you could get away with doing some of this, but again, there's a lot of parks around that are in the oh. same position where you're not necessarily going to have eyeballs on you all the time. Yeah, that's for sure, buddy. Like out Flamborough Way and stuff like that. Like they're just way out in the middle of nowhere. Well, Stony Creek Little League Diamond is another one that's sort of down in a valley and you could, and I don't want to be, I don't want to be giving ideas to people. That's not the <laughs> point, but it just yeah. is sad that this kind of stuff happens and that we're now to the point where you have to do these things. So what do you do about all the other, like you have, you have rooms there, you have offices, you, do you have to, does everything have to be triple locked now? Or do you, again, just trust that, ah, this was a one-time thing. And so we're, you know, our luck is going to be better. I don't know, buddy. You mentioned our bathrooms from before. Um, when that happened, we thought that we'd seen everything then. And me and another fellow in the league, his name's Ken Aird. I talked to him and I'm like, you think we've seen everything now? And I don't think so. So when they broke into our bathrooms, we had to spend thousands of dollars to turn the doors around so that they couldn't be broken in anymore. So they had to open out. I mean, that cost us a lot of money back then and the city helped us with that, but you never know, buddy, the things that people get up to these days, just scratch your head. Where is the, I mean, I, I think, did you guys not start a GoFundMe or something to try and help with this? Where, where does all the money for these things yeah. come from? Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to tell you, buddy. So the very next day I started a GoFundMe page, which start, was a little slow in the start. 
But uh, fortunately, we got some really good media coverage on TV and with the other local papers and stuff, and the word got out. And um, I had donations in that GoFundMe page from $5 all the way up to $5,000. I even got a donation from the scrapyard company that was involved in reporting the theft where the thieves took our, our bleachers too. So we'd originally targeted the GoFundMe for 14000 but then once we got the estimate from the bleacher company, we had to put that up to 16000 which we were able to get in a week and a half. Mm. Well, you know, it goes, I think it has, I think it has something to do, honestly, and I know the song wasn't that we played coming in, wasn't the thing, but people have this, um, romantic view of kids sports and childhood summer baseball and everything. I I mean, I think that that really probably helps when it comes to raising the money that this, these kind of things really upset people when you hear about stuff like this. You're absolutely right, buddy. They they certainly do like the community and the the local businesses and, and other baseball organizations really like from Caledonia. Uh, just up the street, there's the Ancaster Angels organization. They all chipped in for us as well because they all share the same love for the game that we do. So mm. it's an amazing community. Uh, that is Chris Davies. He's the Director of Promotions and Special Events for the Ancaster Little League. I'm glad this worked out, Chris. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thank you, Scott. Uh, yeah, I mean, as much as what Chris says about what they're going to do is good because it hopefully will prevent this from happening in the future, I'll use that word again. How pathetic is it? And I don't know the circumstance of the guy who stole this. It doesn't matter. How pathetic is it that we now are at this point when you have to start doing this extra strong bolt the, the things down or, you know, do all these extra things at a kid's park. And uh, here's the thing. It happened here. I'm positive. I will bet you money. And I'm not a gambling man. I will bet you money that this isn't going to be the last time we hear about something like this. Not this exact same thing but something being stolen or something being broken into at some park around the city just because they're there and they're probably not as secure, but really, we really, this is the discussion we really need to be having people ripping off kids, sports organizations. Really? Kind of sad. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. How safe is our cannabis? Nearly five years after legislation, we still don't know. And then the subhead, the deck says, in Canada, governments and researchers still not studying the health effects of cannabis consumption on the body. You would think, I would think, now I don't know if this is the case, I'm going by this headline, but you would think that when we introduce any new product into the market, so we have a much bigger base now for with which to study this, that we would do this. We do this with alcohol. We know what alcohol does. We know what other things do. We do it with prescription drugs. We know, I mean, that's usually done beforehand. It seems odd if this is the case that we wouldn't be using the opportunity we have with many more people now that can openly say, yes, I'm using it and willing to be in a test. It would seem odd we wouldn't be looking into this. Dr. Kerry Bowman is a bioethicist and an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine with the University of Toronto. Joins me now. Uh, Dr. Bowman, thank you for this today. Happy to be here. This is an interesting one. First of all, is this in fact the case? Are we, are most government boards and agencies and whatever not studying this at this point? No, they don't seem to be. I mean, what they're not studying really is, is the effects of, of particularly, but not exclusively, the smoke. Um, 
And so do remember that most cannabis use, uh, you know, presently is still smoking and people, you know, there's a preference. People find that more effective. There's a lot of concern about dosaging and a lot of confusion and people feel it might be easier if you smoke it. And, and so with that, we don't know what the harm is from the smoke. And when we look to what we do know about Canadian attitudes, most Canadians think that cigarette smoke's awful and cannabis smoke is not as bad. That is not the case. And we need a lot more research on that. In fact, the opposite may be true. It may be worse. Um, so that's part of the problem. But, you know, the whole I'm not necessarily against the legalization. I, I think we needed to go that route, but it's a question of how you do it. So as you know, I'm an ethicist. So let me just go through three things ethically that we sure. always look for. So we need a favorable benefit to risk equation for the many people out there. Now remember what does that mean sorry, what does that mean? Well what it means is that, you know, what are the benefits and do the benefits outdo the risk? So if a person has chronic pain and they're living with that. Because, you know, some of it's recreational, but a lot of it's not. People are taking it because they can't sleep or they have pain or something. So, you know, the benefits would be, okay, I can sleep. And what are the risks? Well, we don't really know what the risks are. Um, do we have full informed consent? We don't really because we don't really know what the risks are. And, and then the third really ethical guideline would be, do, can people be sure, Canadians be sure, that we're monitoring safety and side effects. Well, we don't seem to be doing that either. So, you know, ethically, it's actually very problematic the way this has come down. Well, and one of the things, and I've heard this from a number of people over the last few years, and I, like, I don't want to be all reefer madness here, and, I don't, and you're not doing that either, but the idea that when the government says it's now legal, it's almost like a tacit endorsement that it must be safe. If we're letting you have it, you must be able to believe that this is something that is either good for you or at least not bad for you. And I think from this story, the question is, do we know for sure that it's not bad for you as much as we would like to believe we do? Well, we don't. We don't, we don't know all the ins and outs of it. And, you know, the, the precautionary principle, which simply means, you know, if you're not sure, don't, don't take any action until you are sure. We kind of skip that um, when it came to this. There's a belief that it's a herb and therefore it's fairly benign. I don't think it's catastrophically risky, but dosaging is very confusing to a lot of people as well. That's not clear. And look, I, I'm looking at a subset. I'm, I'm not looking at recreational. I, I'm a little out of touch with that or people using it for recreational. But I'm talking about patients that I know that are living with chronic pain mm. and trying this because they're desperate. Um, and, and, you know, it's very frightening when they try and assess what kind of risks they're they're bringing into their lives because it's not clear. Um, also, the vaping question, you know, vaping and cannabis, we need way more research on that. And, you know, none of the cannabis harvested in Canada in essentially almost two decades now has been tested for emissions and toxicity when it comes to particularly the smoke. So, you know, we, we've this is not good. And I would also, obviously, it's not good. But this is also a time where we need faith in our healthcare system and in our public health. And I can't drop all of this on public health. It goes way beyond public health's responsibilities. But, but you know, we need faith in our system. And when people realize things like this, it's really problematic that we're, to, we're not essentially being protected from this. And cannabis stores are everywhere, as you've yeah. noticed, and we all have. Let, let me, let me, I don't want to be too cynical. I don't want to be too, you know, crazy here, but let me throw one thing out here. Is part of the reason that we, that the government would not be studying this or doing things towards learning about this, 
because we don't necessarily want to know the answer? Is there a, in other words, is there a risk if we all of a sudden find out that there is a problem, does that then put the onus and the blame on the government? So better just not to find it out. Well, it could, you know, it could, and I don't know the answer. I don't either. I I don't. Yeah. No. And I, you're asking a fair question, but here's what I wonder. I'm not a lawyer, but you know, if there's harm, particularly for combustible, meaning smoking, right? If if these harms are as significant as they appear to be, there it could roll it back a couple of decades to the massive lawsuits against the uh, you know against the tobacco industry um, because people were left in harm's way without knowledge about that. So so that's a great concern. Are we going to reverse the legislation? I don't think so. But what we do need is people to be able to to say, here are the risks. Here are my choices. That's called informed consent. Um, I've got this pain, or I've got this, this, or I've, you know. And here are the risks as best we know them, evidence based. That becomes much more ethical because then people can make their own decisions. But people don't have that option Do- at this point. It's not clear enough. Doctor Bowman, I only have thirty or fifteen or thirty seconds here, so yeah. sorry about that. But just, is there any other? drug, and we'll say drug, is there any other drug out there that has been treated the same way that we have not done the study for this, or is this unique? I'm going to say it's unique, but again, I haven't done a deep dive on that, so I could be wrong when I say that, but I cannot think of another one at this time. Dr. Kerry Bowen, great guest. Always love having you on here. Bioethicist, uh, assistant professor at University of Toronto. Thank you so much for this. Always appreciate it. Very welcome. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The Prime Minister and his wife, several hours ago, announced through various social media channels that they were going to be separating after 18 years. And it raises some really interesting questions about, I mean, it's a story. I don't think anyone can dispute that it's a story. The question is, what kind of story and how do we play this story and does it matter to anybody other than as a curiosity or as a, I don't know, I'll tell you what, as someone who's going to know this, I know that my next guest is going to have a great answer for this because he always does. His name is Tim Powers. He's the chairman of Summa Strategies and he's the managing director of Abacus Data. Joins me now. Tim, how are you? Uh, I'm okay, Scott. I'm with you. I, I heard tale of this early this morning and was a bit surprised because look, whether it was um, the prime minister and Sophie Gregoire Trudeau or uh, prime ministers before him, there are always rumors about political leaders and their families and the, the one, uh, unfortunately, surrounding their marital troubles have been going on for a while. So, uh, but but apparently it's very real. And in some ways, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you have to feel for them as human beings and feel for their kids. Uh, they still have three kids under the age of 15, and uh, many Canadians can relate to what this feels like, um, but they can't relate to the microscope now that this this particular story involving this family is going to be under over the next little while. Okay, so first thing, you mentioned the kids. I, I think there's probably not a person out there who doesn't share the view that the kids should be left out of this. This has nothing to do with the kids. It would be totally unfair and unethical and everything else to drag their kids into this in any way. I don't think there's going to be a dispute about that. There is going to be a question that the, the both mm-hmm. uh, social media posts from her and from him both said, you know, we asked for our privacy. Yes. When she, though, has been part of the, 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 the brand, the Trudeau brand, she's been there holding hands with him in elections and things, is it 
is is it a case where we can simply say, well, she's asked for privacy and so therefore there's nothing here to look at? Or or is it inevitable that she has to still be part of the story and we're still going to talk about it? They're both public figures and it's inevitable they're going to both be part of the story. I mean, in, in this neck of the woods, the further uh, east you go and then you know, crop into Quebec, I mean, she, she was well known in Quebec before marrying the prime minister. She was a, a well-regarded uh, television host and personality. Um, she's been front and center in, in political life, though not elected. Um, she's certainly well known, and we live in a world of celebrity culture. Um, the, the Prime Minister, Miss Gregoire Trudeau, were part and parcel of that. We're players in all of that, uh, and as a consequence of that, they're not going perhaps to get the privacy that uh, th- that they want um, as they work through their very personal circumstances. What? Does this do, uh, I mean, look, a politician, these anybody, honestly, almost anybody who's in the public eye can't burp without someone determining there's some sort of political slant to this thing one way or another. Uh, so you can't say that this is necessarily, that this can totally be pulled away from the prime minister or the office, of the prime minister. What, if anything, does it do, or is this purely a as you say, sort of a celebrity gossipy kind of thing, or is there a political side to this? Invariably, there will be political narratives that'll be built out of this, and we'll see what they look like over time. Um, I, I think people have to be very careful and cautious, particularly the opponents of political opponents of Justin Trudeau, just to leave this set of circumstances alone, particularly in these early days. I mean, the prime minister... Uh, in and of himself, is a pretty polarizing figure uh, in the political world. But I think the danger for some of his opponents may be to let their their, their political disdain for him bleed into his personal circumstances. So that will be difficult uh, for them to resist, potentially, but they should. So that could create political narratives. Where they go from here, Scott, um, you know, people who, who are going through what the Prime Minister and Sophie Gregoire Trudeau are going through, you know, may make different life decisions in their circumstances. How will influence, you know, what the prime minister does uh, as he goes forward in terms of running or not running again? Mm. Uh, all of those things. We don't know. Um, you know, when, when you, this is one of the most traumatic things anybody can go through in their life, the breaking up of a marriage or the separation of a marriage. So that could change the way he thinks about politics. But we, we don't know any of that, but that could influence political narratives as we go out. That, that has been raised already by some who say, not that this is any, in any way planned, that's not, we're not suggesting that for a second, but that this may be a moment when he looks and goes, you know, this is a chance or a time to step back from politics. I mean, some people have said he's looked for a way out. Others have said, no, he doesn't want a way out at all. He wants to run again. I don't know. It, it will, I guess we'll, well wait and see. It could be the opposite too, right, Scott? He could feel, all right, um, I've made so many sacrifices here now. I want to do this one more time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. He doubles down, right? We don't know. We don't know the inner psyche of Justin Trudeau to, to know where he will go. I, look, I, I, I think I can say with a degree of certainty from people that I know who know him and know uh, the family that I, you know, when they both say in their statements today that the kids, you know, that will be their focus. That, By all reports and what you see around Ottawa, that is true. They're both very caring, giving, uh, and engaged parents. So, you know, how the kids over time 
you know, maybe they have worries about the children as this proceeds. You know, we don't know because these these things, as they happen, can go into so many different directions. There could also be a redemption narrative, right? Afterwards, who knows? I mean, but today, I mean, we're dealing with two people, like 50% of Canadians have gone through this or having a hell of a rotten day uh, and are uh, probably most concerned about their children, not what you and I and a million other pundits are saying today. Well, and, and there could be a sympathy element to this, I suppose, yeah. uh, that, that especially as you say, those people who have gone through this may look at this and it, and again, I'm not suggesting for a second that this is planned out as some sort of effort to do this. I don't mean that at all, but a naturally occurring phenomenon from this could be that he's seen as a sympathetic character. He could be, and again, but they, but 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 equally, the the you know liberal strategists who may want to jump on that and say, ah, oh, this is awesome, again have to be sensitive about that too. Canadians aren't um, idiots, and if they all, if if there's a sense that you know there's a, too much of a contrived element in all of that, that cuts into whatever authenticity they may admire about the prime minister, Sylvie Gregoire Trudeau. That, that could backfire on them as well, right? I mean, again, having watched these circumstances, having seen these circumstances, have been part of these circumstances with others, the, the perspectives change over time, as we know. And uh, so may the politics of uh, the politics of all this. I gather, I just heard this, the prime minister, I think, is going to speak later on in the week. And I think people will look, you know, again, to get a, a, a feeling for what the politics may be of this when he comments mm. on this. I imagine he will comment before the long weekend comes and uh, and they apparently still go on a family holiday, which is not unusual either. No, I, I, I guess what I would say, Scott, too, look, we do have, you know, from a straight up political analysis perspective, we have had uh, single uh, unmarried party leaders succeed. His father is one, uh, though he lost uh, before he won again, 79, then won again in 80. Jason Kenney was a single uh, person who became uh, premier of Alberta. Christy Clark was a single person who became, you know, we're, we're in a different time where um, people are, I think, are not going to be judged on their their leadership skills and ability because they're unwed or their their marriage is going through change, transition, turmoil didn't work. You describe it the way you want. So I think a lot of those old mores are out. We're going to have maybe some new political uh, mores established as we all work through this. Interesting story. As I say, neither of us expected today. Nobody did. Uh, Tim Power, Chairman of Summit Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Good to talk to you, Scott. Take care. Bye. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. I, earlier this year, went onto my phone. I have a CFL app mobile app on my phone from a few years ago, I downloaded it and noticed that none of the game's scores were loading and went to think, well, maybe my app is broken. Maybe I should just go back and find the new app at the app store. And there doesn't seem to be a CFL at mobile app. And I got thinking that can't be the case. How can we have a league, a professional league that is attempting to you know, stand tall with the big boys and draw to, and doesn't have a, a mobile app is like two, th- year 2000 kind of stuff, isn't it? I want to bring in Michael Norain. He is an associate professor of sports management at Brock University. He joins us now. Uh, Dr. Norain, thanks for doing this. 
Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Am I being too hard on the CFL by expecting that this is not really a big thing to have, that it's kind of expected at this point? No, it, it, it's it's not. Uh, I don't think it's too much pressure or, or too, you know too much of a slight at all. I think, especially when you, you for a long period of time you've been trying to elevate this idea of selling to a younger demographic that you know CFL fans might be getting older and trying to connect with youth to you know rejuvenate and and sort of replenish the the fandom pot. You have to be able to t- connect with consumers where they are. And the youth demographic, as we all know, I mean, you know, many of us have kids or we know kids, they, are, they have apps, they have the access to the internet. Um, and so a mobile app is sort of like a, a key standard in 2023. I think to your point, though, Scott, you know, the two th- the year 2000 argument was let's have a good website. And then maybe two- 2010 was let's ma- make sure our Facebook page um, exists. And, and then maybe even in sport you know, maybe having a Twitter page in 2015 by 2016 standards. And I think for the CFL, you know, there are a lot of things that we can unpack here, but the CFL has been really trying to focus in on its website first and foremost. And to be honest, they haven't even been getting that really well squared away. And and again, there are reasons we can unpack for that, but it's just kind of, it's disappointing to see a league talk about how it needs to get more youthful, how it needs to get younger, when you look at a comparative product, and again, I know it's not football, but if you look at the Canadian Elite Basketball League, which has only been around for five years, that league has been able to really ramp up its uh, not just its product, but its connection to youth audiences across Canada because of its ability to embrace digital tech. And you know, going forward, you know, sports organizations need to really embrace uh, sports tech, um, and the CFL just hasn't done that for a long period of time. Just as you're talking, I grabbed my phone and looked on the App Store, and CEBL Mobile is the first. If you type in CEBL, it pops right up. I mean, it's mm-hmm. right there. Is it enough, though, to say, well, look, our partners, TSN is one of our partners, or our teams, they have mobile apps. You can go there. That's sufficient. You're probably not a fan of every team in the league. You're probably a fan of the Ticats or a fan of... Well, I'll say the Argos, but we know nobody listening is a fan of the Argos, but nonetheless, um, (laughs) but if you're a fan of the team, so you'll find it that way, we don't need to have one from the league. We can have one individually from the different teams or, or our broadcast partner. I, I'm the lone Argos guy on CHML. <laughs> I, I, I used to work for them a long, long time ago, so don't hold that against me. No, no, I think, so So here's part of the problem, though, is sports, professional sports is an ecosystem, and it takes two to tango. It's not just the responsibility of the teams. Um, you know, at, at the mafia table, you've got the individual mob bosses, but you still collectively have the brand that is, we are the mafia. And so if you look at other professional sports leagues, at least on the men's side, but even on the women's side, um, I'll use the NBA or even the NFL. The Buffalo Bills have their own app, but of course the NFL has their own brand too. Um, the NFL sells their own paraphernalia, their own memorabilia that is NFL Shield branded. And the CFL tries to do that to an extent as well, but not obviously to a great extent or to the same success. And I think, um, again, this comes back to what is the vision for the league? Now, when you talk about TSN, CFL has been working with Bell Media for some time now. We know this. Uh, of course, the Grey Cup and, uh, you know, a lot of CFL games have been taken away from CBC and put on to TSN. And, and we know how that story has gone. This is also, uh, you know, the, the story also changes a little bit, though. Over the last few years, when the CFL has got, come into a relationship with Genius Sports, which is a sports gambling slash analytics provider, 
um, of, of data and, and sorts. And so you've got the CFL who are really intrigued um, by this new world, but still not known to wanting or, or, or still unbeknownst to themselves what it is that they would like to get out of it and what they would like to do for themselves. So they, they, they're a bit in a, a rock and a hard place because they've got their relationship with TSN. Of course, TSN is not going to put extra dollars into the league. They're going to want to take people and fans away from the CFL.ca page and come to the TSN.ca page. I mean, that's better for their business. And for Genius Sports, you're not necessarily going to want to give away the data. You're not trying to give away uh, the farm for free when if you're, if you're leaking out milk here. And so at the end of the day, the CFL is signing these relationships, but then they're, they're beholden to those relationships and they're not able to really invest into their own product. And I think, Scott, one of the take-home messages here is in 2023, sports organizations, leagues, specifically, who are the purveyors of their own destiny will be able to chart their own destiny. And the one of the challenges, the biggest challenge for the CFL is if they cannot control their own destiny, then they're just going with the way of the winds. And as we've seen over the last decade, if not plus, the CFL's, you know, kind of in this weird spot when it comes to professional sport in this country. And as it, the competition, not just for football, um, with the NFL, you know, kind of seeping into Canada in terms of fandom. But when we think about other sports, whether it's soccer, baseball, lacrosse, hockey, of course, curling, there's just so much out there. And when you've got these tech connections, you know, people can watch YouTube clips of, you know, lacrosse um, happening in San Diego. People can watch YouTube clips of badminton happening in China, um, esports in Germany. There's just so many different ways for younger people to connect. And if you don't have your tech down pat, you're losing out on significant ways to uh, generate new business. That is Mike Narain, uh, Dr. Michael Narain. You know, I always forget that. It's, it's reasonably new. So we got to remember that. Dr. Michael Narain, Associate Professor of Sports Management at Brock University. Thanks for the time. Uh, thanks so much, Scott. Anytime. You uh, undoubtedly, over the last number of weeks, have heard lots or read lots about the showdown between the Canadian government and Meta, Facebook or Instagram and about news and whether Canadian news is going to be taken off because the government wants them to pay and it's a very complicated story, quite honestly. However, whichever side of this you may be on, it appears that we are now, the the stare down appears to be about to take a next step because there's always been this thought, I think, uh, maybe I'm overstating this, but I think there's always been this belief within the government that in the end, you know, they'll back down. Well, it looks like, well, Meta has said that within the next few weeks, it is going to be removing news for all Canadian users of Facebook and Instagram, that this is no longer going to be a staring contest, that stuff is going to happen uh, I want to bring in Jeffrey Dvorkin. He's a senior fellow at the Massey College, a former director of the journalism program at University of Toronto Scarborough and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeffrey, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for doing this. Uh, is it fair, and, and like, tell me if I'm off base here. I, it's always been my belief that the federal government thought that ultimately these companies were going to blink or something was not going to get to this point. I, am I wrong that there might have been that belief and that this is maybe a surprise that it's actually going to happen? I think you're absolutely right. And that everyone is sort of playing a staring match at each other at this point. Eventually, it'll get resolved. But in the short term, and maybe even in the medium term, um, we're going to have to change our 
approach to how we get the news, both whether we're working inside a news organization or whether we are consuming information from our uh, from our media platforms. One of the things that occurs to me is that Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, to a certain extent, have taken advantage of the fact that there are fewer people working in journalism than ever before. And what these large organizations have done is they've said, don't worry, just log on, you'll be fine. Yeah, maybe we'll harvest your information and sell it to uh, to other organizations, but we will be able to provide this. So ultimately, uh, what's happened inside news organizations is, and forgive me for, if I sound a little bit harsh, but I think that news organizations have taken advantage of this. They've gotten a little bit lazy uh, because Facebook has been feeding them story ideas that they have harvested through this mysterious thing called the algorithm. And and those of us who are no longer in news in newsrooms, uh, we got lazy too. We said, "Oh, we'll just go on Facebook and we'll find out what what looks interesting and we'll follow it." So everything is shifted for the in in the immediate term. What needs to happen for those of us consuming information is that we need to go to your websites, and you guys from your websites, you need to be more well, aggressive, I guess, to kind of uh, harvest the, whatever information is out there. That information is still out there. The question is, how do we receive it? How do you guys process this information? And what are you going to do with it? And so I think that Meta has got uh, the government and the public caught in this dilemma. Are we willing, you and I, willing to go to various other websites to gather that information and then repurpose it and put it out there for the benefit of the of the public. That's the challenge right now. So that, yeah, we got a little lazy over the last uh, 20 years or so. And now it's like we're going, it's back to the future for all of us. Um, when I worked in a newsroom, whether it was at CBC or NPR, we would go online to various news websites, especially local news websites, to figure out what was going on, because you guys have a better sense of what's happening than those of us in from away news organizations. Mm. That's going to be the challenge right now. So many things that I want to follow up on. I have limited time here, but is it going to be, we, we've heard that when Meta, when um, Zuckerberg or whomever flips the switch to turn it all off, that it's going to be catastrophic for Canadian journalism, is it? No, I don't think so. I think what it'll do is our habits will have to change a little bit. We'll have to be a little more involved in digging out the stories for ourselves rather than letting uh, Meta do it for us. Uh, that's going to take a little bit of time and energy, and it's not going to be quite as easy as it was a month or so ago. But in the end, something will resolve itself. There's too much money at stake. And the issue for the government is that it's going to make the information deserts more more powerful. Mm. Um, there's going to be, unless they can restore some way of having 
uh, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter be out there gathering this information so that you guys in your newsroom uh, are able to say, oh, this is a really interesting story and I think our audience will be interested in it. That is going to be the way we're going to get back to doing this in a proper way. But in the short term, it's going to be a little thin. Uh, here's a tricky one. I think it's a tricky one. Maybe it's not. Maybe maybe you have a very clear answer for me. There's always been the suggestion that the algorithms that are on these social media pages have led to the division between the two sides, the left and the right, the Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals, whatever, that it's been a, you, that it feeds you what you want to hear. You live in your own echo chamber. And I think there's probably truth to that. But if we now are required to go and look for ourselves for our own information, will that fix that or will it make it even worse? Because now we're only looking for the stuff that we're wanting to see. What a good question. Um, I have a feeling that this is going to have an effect of reducing our ability to see the world in a better, more contextual way. I think the problem with the division that we're seeing now, certainly in the U.S., and to a certain extent in Canada, is that there's too much information and not enough context um, so that, yeah, we can hear about all kinds of horrible things going on, which drives us into retreat uh, so that we only want sort of comforting pictures of kittens or something. <laughs> and I think that that's going to be the challenge, especially for news organizations. With fewer resources, there are fewer people working in newsrooms everywhere in Canada now. How are we going to get the news we need as citizens of this country? Yeah, because that, that that is my worry. I mean, again, I think the algorithms have been horrendous as far as creating these divisions. But now if you are required to only search people, you know, you don't go and buy food that you don't want to eat. You're going to go to try and find the things that you like. And exactly. That's exactly the, the issue. There may be a big story in Hamilton um, that is going on. And, and your obligation to your listeners is to figure out how to get to that story without Facebook. That's going to be a big challenge. Jeffrey Vorkin uh, at Massey College, former director of journalism at University of Toronto, and look up his book, Trusting the News in a Digital Age, uh, worth getting. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Good luck. A long time ago, and I don't know if I'm the only, I'm sure I'm not the only person who's had this idea, but uh, during a previous Olympics, I don't know how many Olympics ago, I had this brilliant idea. I thought it was brilliant anyway. And that was, you know, it, it, we have no context when you watch Olympic athletes because he, they line up for, you know, when Michael Phelps lines up to dive into the pool. Yeah, Michael Phelps is the best, won all kinds of medals, but the difference between him and the guy who comes eighth in that heat is not that great usually. It's not that great because all of the people who are diving into that pool are all outstanding world-class swimmers. It makes it impossible to really fully appreciate just how great Michael Phelps is. Again, yes, he wins all the medals, but how do we see the difference between Michael Phelps and the average person? And so I suggested back at the time that what every Olympic sport should have is Joe Public that you don't have to put them in the race itself, that NBC or CBC or CTV or whoever is showing the Olympics before every event, film the average guy, the average woman doing that event, 
And then you know how they have like, you can have ghostly images so you can see, overlay it on the picture so you can see what would an average swimmer who swims at the Y, what would they do in that 50 meter race against Michael Phelps? Let's, you need to have context in the NBA. When you see everybody who's six foot eight, it's hard to see how big these people are because you don't have the average five foot six person standing on the court to see how giant they are. Anyway, that was my idea. You need to have the context of an everyday person competing to understand the greatness of these athletes. Well, unintentionally. We finally got proof that my idea is good. And I'll tell you why. Uh, The summer world university games were in China. And uh, it seems, it seems that the, well, one of the leaders, who is it here? The, um, uh, the head of the Somali athletic federation has a niece who I guess wanted to go compete in the world university games. She is, well. She, she's not an elite athlete. Let's put it that way. She looks like the average person, you know, she, she, she decided she wanted to run in the hunt women's hundred meters. And she does not look like the say Jamaican women sprinters who line up there with, you know, who are world-class top of the world sprinters with rippling thigh muscles and arms and nothing like that. She looked like, you know, the average person. And when the gun went. She ran very much like the average person. And I will tell you, it showed just how fast those Olympic runners or those world university runners are. Um, the, um, the, the woman who did this, Nazra Ali Abukar, she was the, uh, Somalia's entry in the women's hundred meter sprint came in. Well, the winners come in at around 11 point something seconds. Uh, she crossed the finish line in 21.81 seconds, which is actually half a second slower than Florence Griffith Jr.'s all-time world record. Now, drugged up, but all-time world record in the 200 meters. She finished the 100 in longer than it took Florence Griffith Jr. to run double the distance in the Olympics. Uh, I'm telling you, Tom, this, you watched the video. I sent you the video. Yeah. This is how you see how great these athletes are compared to Joe Schmo. Well, are we sure that this Somalia runner even knew what she was competing in? Because I watched the video and as everybody else sprinted across the finish line, the camera cut to her. She's going for a light jog. Yeah. Like well, that's what's happening. If here. you watch her take off out of the blocks, all you have to do is watch about the first 10 to 15 strides of every single one of the athletes and every other woman in every other lane is a world-class athlete and probably within, uh, you'd have to count it for me. I'm not watching it as we speak right now, but probably within 15 strides, maybe less, she has disappeared out of the frame. She is so far behind them. Now I'm pointing this out, understanding that if I was lining up at that start line, I would have been exactly the same. That's the whole point of this. This, I don't, I don't think this was a bad thing. I think it's ridiculous that the niece of the head of the athletic federation got sent here. I think there probably should be some questions about nepotism and all kinds of other things. And there are, but I think that they have unintentionally proved a point and stumbled on something that is needed. It is needed. If we want to see what pole vaulting 19 feet or whatever the world record is now looks like, or throwing the javelin 
however far the world record is in javelin. If I got up there and tried to throw the javelin, first of all, my shoulder is all buggered up, so I probably <laughs> wouldn't get it very far. But just take the average person to throw the javelin and then show how they're throwing it. Now you go, wow. All right. So it actually, I now see how hard that is. It is kind of funny watching this video because there's, of course, it, immediate standout is the Somalia runner, but just if I was in that position, all I can, all I can see and hear from all everybody else around me is just right down the finish line. And I'm like, where the hell they go? She, the, the, I'm not exaggerating when I say that the other runners were beginning their cool down when she was still crossing the finish line. It's, I'm not making that up. It is absolutely hilarious, but it is, I think it is proof of my point. I hope that somebody covering the Olympics will have seen this and I'm sure they will, and will have the same idea and say, it would be way more interesting to just show how great someone is when they're doing these things, when you compare it to the average person off the street, because that's basically what she was. She was just... The average person off the street and, uh, yeah, anyway, go look it up. It's, uh, just type in, do a search for Somalia, Somali sprinter. You'll find it. You'll find the video and, uh, you tell me if it doesn't show just how, forget, it's not how bad she is. She's just one of us. She is one of us, an untrained person who got thrown into right. a world-class event. It's about the great, anyway, I, I love it. It would be great reality TV though. That would be something they I would, had a show. I would literally sit down. They did. They did. They had a show called I think it was Average Joe, and they had professional athletes who competed against. They had this idea against wow. just people, and so you had, for example, a former major league pitcher, John Rocker, was the guy who was uh, the pitcher, and you had to try and hit off him, and he was throwing ninety mile an hour sliders at you. Wow! And you were just a guy who'd played, you know, men's league slow pitch. Okay. So or you had to play football against a defensive back and run up for, run past him while he tried to crush you. It was a cool show, but it's even better if you put it into yeah. the actual event where they really care. You know, Scott, once the writer's strike and the actor's strike is done, they need to reboot that they do. for the rest of our viewer Some, guys. Somebody who does the Olympics is going to have notices. I'm telling you, somebody will and will finally latch on to this idea. Someone, write you. that down. Write that down. Write it down. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. It is time. All right, we're out. We're done with time today, but I'll be back at 3 o'clock tomorrow. Hope you will be as well. Thank you to Tom for keeping us on the air and Will for lining everything up. Thank you to all of our amazing guests. Mostly thank you to you for listening. We do appreciate you being with us. We'll talk to you tomorrow. See you. 